Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. is safe with all this severe winter weather uh, we're glad you're here for this special show uh, Ken God's Word is returning he's been a guest discussing his UFOs in the Bible magic in the Bible and we'll be getting into his recent publication the Fermi paradox and making her debut on Nightlight as a guest is Barbara DeLong. Uh, they co-authored before Roswell, and it is now available. I think it's been out for maybe a couple weeks. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and uh, you'll be seeing and hearing uh, one or both of them on many shows uh, to discuss this uh, really uh, neat book, Um, and and you'll see why we go uh, analyze it over the next couple hours. Uh, It's available on Amazon, um, I think BarbaraDeLong.com. Uh, Ken, is, uh, can you get it through your website? Uh, yep, I've got, uh, I've got links on my website, DimensionFold.com. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's so on BarbaraDeLong.com in the I recommend section as well. Okay. There you go. So, um, I learned a lot from this. Uh, you know, your book. Um, maybe we should 
discuss with the audience how the book originated uh, you know, and, you know, segue there into a bunch of other topics. Well, that's really Ken's Good story. Good idea, because, so Barbara should probably start yeah. that. Yeah. Sure. Okay, tell you what, I'll give a very brief uh, word and then I'll switch it over to you because really what happened was when I, when I met Barbara uh, from coming on Nightlight to talk about some of my other books, I saw that she had a lot of material that was very interesting on her website and I thought, hey, it would be really cool to turn some of this stuff into a book. Uh, so now... I'll hand it over to Barbara, and she can discuss how she got this information. Okay. Um, my late husband was Patrick Cook, and he was he was quite well known. He he was an authority on on UFOs. He wrote uh, the Bible UFO Connection, and he had the Matrix Radio website out there a lot. And he he was um, he had a photographic memory, and he loved to research and. He he did a lot of it, and when he passed away, I had to take his website down, and so I checked to see if everything you know if if everything on his website was represented in his books, and the only two areas that were not in his books were his material on giants, so I brought that over and put that on my website, and his material on UFOs, so I brought that over and put it on my website. And it's gotten a lot of attention over the years, but, you know, I, I really, and I have read through it a couple times and found it interesting, but it wasn't my major focus until Ken got a hold of me, and now I'll pass it back to him. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so uh, I I took a look through, uh, through Barbara's site, and I saw I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff on there, but um, I, I guess one of the things that sort of piqued my interest first was the pages on UFOs. And I say pages because it's literally pages and pages uh, on her website. And um, and so I, I reached out to Barbara and I said, well, what if we collaborate on this and turn it into a book? Um you know, she, she thought it was a good idea, so that's what we did. And uh, essentially, we took uh, all that material that um, uh, that Patrick had begun collecting. I don't know, many decades ago, I think. And um, and I imagine it's been growing a little bit here and there as Barbara has been adding to it. And then uh, when we started putting it into the book form, we added a few more. Um, a few more <laughs> items, um, particularly uh, I brought in a, a little bit of the material from uh, UFOs in the Bible book, um, and we also agreed on a couple of other um, instances that we wanted to include that we thought we were important. Um, okay. So, yeah, so that's kind of how that happened. Okay, and you to have um, you know, presented uh, what, about 100 pages. You know, it's not a uh, you know, huge uh, book, but you, you, know, you have 
many uh, concise reports from obviously before Roswell to um, you know like caveman times. Yeah, indeed. Um, it it's a nice uh, style. It's not you know like an overwhelming amount of information. It's just present. Yeah, you know, there there it is. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, the, the, in you know, sixteen you know, thirty four. You know th- th- this guy in France uh, you know, r- reported in his journal. You know. Uh, all, all this, and you know, you move on to the uh, pre, you know, the preceding uh, sighting. So you know, it's not, uh, it, it, it's well done. It, it captures your attention. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, like I said, it's not, um, you know, just being flooded with uh, information. It, it, it just. It, uh, it's a very uh, insightful uh, handbook, and, and I think you, know, you do mention patterns uh, towards the end of the book. So you know, maybe we can kind of start looking at some of, some of the patterns as, as we get too, started. Mark. One of the one of Ken was asked a question someplace where he was interviewed on the book, and it was a really good question. It and I, I think that it, it's important for people to understand why he picked Roswell and went backwards from Roswell. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, because on on Barbara's site, there's actually um, it actually comes into the into the current times a little bit further. Um, in my opinion, um, once, well, Roswell is a, is a pretty good place to define it. Um, you mm-hmm. could make the argument that it happened a little bit before that. Uh, but in 1947, uh, there was a real sea change in the way that um, flying saucers phenomenon, and as it was known then, uh, was viewed and was um, sort of thought about in the public eye, um, as well as uh, as in the perception and the perspective of the government and the, the other official bodies, such as the army and, and you know police forces and that kind of thing. Um, because what happened uh, up until 1947. Um, there had certainly been government involvement and army involvement, uh, especially during the Second World War. Um, a lot of sightings occurred during the war, and uh, and many of them were made by fighter pilots, and they passed the information up through the chain of command, as you know one would do, as was appropriate, um, and. Uh, not a big a big deal wasn't really made about it you know reports were filed and there's probably uh, um, who knows if there's still a storeroom somewhere with with all those original reports Uh, but that started to change in 1947 because um, what we saw with the Roswell incident was that there was an official 
um, report from the Army um, who investigated the, the crash in the Roswell Desert. And um, they, they, the report, the Army actually uh, came forward to the press and to the local newspaper. And the next day, the newspaper ran, ran, ran some headlines, you know, flying saucer had crashed in the desert. Um, and that, that was all perfectly normal up until that point, because that's kind of the way everything happened. Uh, you know, you would, you would go talk to the papers and they would run it. Um, but the following day uh, was when thing, things changed. And this, this might be why uh, Lieutenant Philip Corso's book um, has the title that it has, and that is, of course, I'm referring to his book, The Day After Roswell. And he goes uh, very in-depth into all of this other stuff that happened uh, because that was triggered by this crash. Um, but so now we're getting into the realm of um, the espionage and cover-ups and top-secret stuff and um, subterfuge and... Uh, misinformation and disinformation and suppression and all of this stuff, uh, which wasn't really a thing before the Roswell crash. Um, certainly there was, uh, there was, you know, the CIA and the FBI and, and they were doing that kind of, um, you know, that kind of activity, uh, but they didn't really seem to care that much about flying saucers and they were more interested in, um, you know, spy, you know, James Bond kind of spy stuff, um, which obviously you do have to, yet uh, uh, you have to keep that in mind in terms of um, national security and that kind of thing. Um, but suddenly, uh, the powers that be decided that uh, wreckage of a, of a large piece of metal in a desert was something that warranted the concern of the national security folks. And so that was a really big change. Um, ever since then, you can't get a straight answer. Um, and there's, there's so many bad players on both sides of the, um, of the debate, you know, whether, whether you're a UFO believer or a denier, um, there's on both, on both camps, there are all kinds of people who are um, making stuff up and hiding stuff. So basically there's a real lack of honesty and truth in the entire realm of ufology uh, that really has been the case since 1947. Uh, but before 1947, that really wasn't the case. Um, and so to look at, the incidents that we chose to look at was basically stopping when the waters became too muddied. I don't know if it's possible to write a book about UFOs in the, in modern times uh, without being deceived because there's just so much misinformation. Okay. Well, let's look at, um, a case from 50 years earlier that um, I find really intriguing. Uh, part of it uh, 
the 1897 airships uh, were documented uh, right down the river from me in Sistersville. Um, there were also uh, John Keel also mentions them in his Mothman prophecies. Uh, so you know we're dealing with uh, a different kind of craft. Uh, wreckage, I, you know, it, you know the map you have of it uh, it does have a little bit of the same paths uh, as the you know recent Chinese spy balloon. So, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, there was also a, at least one body associated with the um ships that uh one of the ships that crashed in uh uh Texas Aurora. and you know, get, yeah Aurora there is information about um I think there's some of the metal in, in that case and we have uh, some of the uh, you know the famous photo of uh, General Corso and the pieces of metal on the floor of the office. So, you know, uh, Ken, you want to talk a little bit about the uh, 1897 airship uh, sightings? For sure. So. The thing that I find most interesting about about this particular case is that it continues for a, uh, about a six month period, um, and uh, not not every single day or anything. But there are a couple of um, gaps in terms of there were no sightings for a week, maybe or a week or two here and there. Uh, but then there are these long strings. Um, where there was sighting after sighting in town after town reporting reported day after day um, and it was it seems to be done so in a way where there seems that there was an actual single um, <clears throat> flying object that was moving about the moving across the country um, so we we pieced together um, a lot of those reports, and some of them had uh, specific dates on them. Um, some of them only had the byline in terms of which local paper uh, was was covering it, um, and had more kind of more um, general dates, like you know it was in May, but we don't necessarily know the day. So, um, but be, due to um, Using uh, Google Maps, I was able to plot all of the locations and uh, and all of the dates that we were given, and then um, using uh, extrapolation, we were able to um, basically identify the most likely uh, path. Now, there's a fair bit of zigzagging around as well, so um, it's not necessarily uh, town A and town B, but it's basically 
town A and B were within a couple of days of each other. And, um, and you know, it's, I, I can't tell you exactly the, you know, the exact flight, flight path, uh, but we can, we can say with fairly good certainty that the general pattern was that um, these uh, skyships, or I, I should say this skyship, because really there was only one of them, um, and I, in my opinion, it's quite obvious that it was a single ship that was seen um, all throughout the country. And it showed up in California uh, in the um, Sacramento area first, and then it uh, dipped down to San Diego, I think it was, and then um, back up the coast, and it was seen in British Columbia in my neck of the woods. Uh, they didn't give an exact location um, on that sighting. It was some fishermen in British Columbia. Most likely, they were uh, in the Vancouver area. Um, but there, you know, it's a it's a big province. They could have been uh, a lot of different places. Um, but at, at any rate, they there was this sighting. Um, after California, it shows up in, in BC, and then uh, over near Winnipeg, um, again in the, in the prairies uh, up in Canada. And those are the only two times we, we, we had reports of them showing up in Canada, um, which doesn't necessarily tell you that much because um, in 1897, uh, sure there was people in Canada, but you know, there's, there's the population of Canada has always been and will probably always be um, very minute in compared to the, the population of the United States. So it's not surprising that we would only see a couple of reports from Canada. Um, then it dips down into the Midwest. Uh, it goes through, um, if, if I start naming states, I'm just going to miss a bunch of them, so I, I'm not going to even try. North, um, but, North Dakota and Iowa. Yeah, it goes through North Dakota, Iowa, and then into like um, Kansas. Well, maybe over to Chicago. Yeah, uh, it's hard to it's hard to say exactly which one of those areas is uh, is first and second. Um, but uh, so there was a little bit of guesswork in terms of some of that. Um, but basically, kind of zigzags around the Midwest um, and uh, into the Great Great Lakes region. And then uh, at some point makes its way down into Texas, um, and maybe I maybe I can let uh, Barbara take over and tell us about the the Texas sightings. Oh well, that one <clears throat> is one of my favorites. Um, this is the one where he flew into a, a windmill and crashed. Was that yes. it? Yes. Okay. Yep, that's it. Um, yeah, we, there's so many here. But I, I think what fascinated me was with this one was that um, it, they thought originally there were six people in the in the vehicle or in the in the ship, and <clears throat> it it did crash in, crash into a windmill. Apparently they fixed it sort of. It took off again and then it crashed and burned. And even though they thought there were six people in it, they only found one body. What what I find just just delightful and, and and so reflective of the times um they said that the the pilot the body was a very small man and so they um they 
picked it up and and they they had a funeral for it and they interviewed we get our most of our story from an interview with a 90-year-old woman or 92-year-old I forget she was 90 something and um she her parents didn't let her go to the crash site but she did go to the funeral for the pilot and they buried it in their in their cemetery and many years later in the 70s I think um an organization, I think with the government that had to do with the UFOs, wanted to exhume the body, and the townspeople would not tell them where the body was. They wanted it to rest in peace, which which I thought was, you know, it, it was so sweet. Sweet is the best word you can use. It's sort of like, you know, this was somebody that died in a crash, and we buried him, and he's at peace, and leave him alone. And they were never able to exhume the body. But um, I found it fascinating that uh, the townspeople were not, they did not appear to be frightened as much as they wanted to honor honor someone who passed away. So another time and, and a more peaceful time, I do believe. Okay, yeah, there were six. Yeah, they said they thought there were six, but when they went through the crash site, they only found one body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a number of the different sightings of of that same ship um, had slightly different stories to tell. Like, they were all basically the same, uh, but there's some variations in some of the details. And one of those was how many people were seen on the ship. now, that's probably because uh, this ship appeared to be, um, like, sort of unusual in the fact that it was more like a ship, like almost like a flying ship, or like a, almost like a, like a boat if, that we would think of, in terms of having a deck and having um, a, a part, uh, like a cabin kind of an area. Which yeah, is a cupola. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which is pretty unusual in terms of UFOs. Um, there, it's not the only one that's described this way, um, but it's uh, it's sort of significant that that this particular ship has um, a place where people basically come out and are standing on the deck, and oftentimes they were seen working. Um, many people saw. Um, two or three figures standing on the deck. Um, sometimes they seem to be engaged in repairing uh, something, like some, uh, something had broken on the ship. Um, sometimes it was obvious that there was something broken because either there was, you know, uh, sputtering fumes kind of thing um, or the erratic uh, navigational patterns. Um, and sometimes there was actually the the crew were seen to drop uh, what appeared to be an anchor or some kind of uh, like a hook, so like if, as, a, as though they were trawling um, for God knows what. But um, they seemed to be trying to pick something up. And so in a couple of the instances, the um, the hook actually got snagged on the on something on the ground. And one of the crew members from the ship, um, in one case, climbed down the rope um, 
And in another case, uh, it was sort of described almost as though he were swimming in the air. So there's a lot of really weird things uh, about this particular ship. Um, but in general, uh, oh, and a couple other things too. So the the, the descriptions of the, the people on board um, often included the fact that they were talking. So they were seen talking to each other, talking amongst themselves. And um, of, of course, the people, the, the witnesses could not understand their language. So they described it as a weird language. But I mean, what does weird mean? It's just something that you, that you can't understand. Um, in, in at least one instance, the, uh, one, one of the men on board was described as Asian looking, um, which again is kind of interesting and sort of funny, but, uh, like, what is that? What is the cultural, um, you know, interplay at work in 1897 when you have to realize there were, uh, you know, there was the, all, the, all kinds of cultural effects at work in North America um, around that time period, and particularly uh, with Chinese immigrants who had been hired to come over and work on the railroads that were going across the country. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and then also there was, um, uh, at times, they the people on board attempted to speak and communicate to the, the witnesses. Um, and in those cases, presumably they were speaking English. Um, we don't know for sure if all the witnesses only spoke English. There's a lot, again, this is a time um, shortly after a lot of immigration. Uh, so there was, and these were in areas that had a lot of German immigrants and um, probably uh, Swedish and Norwegian immigrants and, and all kinds of other immigrants from other places. So it, it doesn't necessarily hold true that they were speaking English, um, but that they seem to be able to speak a language that was understood by some of the locals. And, and you do have a passage about the two of the alien men were able to communicate with the property owners about drawing water from the well. So they had to have some basic understanding of speaking English. I thought that was <laughs> yeah. It's, thought, it seems that way. Yeah, uh, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but it, uh, one of the uh, the that craft had. Uh, either a canvas or an aluminum siding. I thought that uh, – then you contrast that with uh, uh, the magnetic turbine that uh, Gerard discussed last week from a 1910 uh, uh, part that uh, was found in uh, – Marion, Ohio. Uh, you know, that's some pretty un, unusual find uh, falling from the sky. Then, then you get the more advanced uh, metal from the Roswell crash. So it, 
you know, it's almost like uh, you, you can see an evolution of uh, metal, uh, you know, the types of uh, siding on the crafts, and so some of it was metal. Yeah, it is very interesting indeed. Um, now, I hate to bring this up because our book is about UFOs, so you know we're going to we're going to say that this is an unidentified flying object. Well, obviously. It's unidentified, and obviously it's flying. Um, but what, in terms of what the origins of this craft were, um, one could speculate uh, that you know maybe a craft like that is not well suited for space travel. Um, in fact, in many of the descriptions, it seems to be like a. It seems to re- rely on buoyancy. Um, much as a dirigible or a blimp would. Um, but the funny thing about that is, uh, and it also looks a lot like a dirigible or a Zeppelin, um, but the the technology for Zeppelins and dirigible uh, was, at, was not really um, quite there yet. Like, it followed shortly after. So one could even speculate that the Zeppelin industry was spurred on by the arrival of this ship um, and that uh, basically we stole the technology or at least got the ideas um, from watching this ship. That would be one way of interpreting that. Um, Another way would be that um, somebody had already been developing it but it was a top secret thing and nobody knew about it. Um, However, that's a little bit difficult in terms of the, uh, the timeline and the, the success rates of the early development of, of the dirigible and Zeppelins because it's quite well documented um, in terms of who the inventors of these uh, types of ships were when they did them and what kind of results they were getting. And generally, we're talking about 20 years later, so around, um, around 1915 to 1925 uh, was when you know, there was more development around this type of technology. Uh, but these guys had really bad luck with, uh, with their, I shouldn't say bad luck, but they, you know, that it was difficult. They were up against a very difficult task. Um, it was almost the equivalent of, uh, you know, the, the NASA and the moon landing mission in terms of we're trying to do something that, that man has only ever dreamed of. And so in the early, in the early 1900s, uh, a lot of people tried their hand at um, flying machines um, a lot of different ways, obviously, you know, the the Wright brothers and all that. But um, in terms of these lighter than aircraft that had, uh, were basically buoyant and used like almost like a hydrogen or helium um, situation to to provide lift, this is kind of what these crafts sound like. And um, in the, up until about 19... Uh, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong if I try to say the right year, but in the in the 1920s, some somewhere um, was the first time anybody was documented 
in being able to make this flight work for more than a couple of yards without crashing. Um, so like the first time somebody was able to travel, say a mile, uh, was, was a long time after this uh, 1897 uh -huh. sighting. Well, the 1897 guys traveled for thousands of miles. Like I'm gonna, uh, off the top of my head, I'll say at least 4,000 miles um, because they went from California all the way up into Canada, across and then back down. It was a heck of a trip. Um, there's no way that anybody uh, 20 years later could even come close to that until um, many, many years later when finally the Germans were able to uh, do the first transcontinental or transatlantic flights of the Zeppelin, which of course ended tragically uh, with the crash of the, um, the uh, what's it called? The Hindenburg, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I really enjoyed that one of the early sections of your book. I, I thought uh, there were so many things, I, you know, we could tie it in uh, you know, to other, you know, you know various uh, you know, passages from, you know, just say the Exodus. And, you know, we'll do that late, later in the show. But, you know, when you look at the Aurora case or, uh, you know, Moses following the, a pillar of fire uh what at those uh two uh time periods flew other than uh birds <clears throat> yeah exactly i mean the what, the exodus was of moses was roughly 1300 bc <clears throat> there was nothing there was no kind of technology 3000 years ago that could do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, what you know? What did the people say? I think you know, I thought that was uh, uh, you know really well done section you had there. Uh, well, you know, wait. There's there has to be. <clears throat> I have to get this piece of trivia in here because it's the best piece of trivia I've had to play with for ever. 1970, uh, 1917, um, fighter pilot um, Baron Manfred von Richtenfern, also known as the Red Baron, um, not only shot down 80 enemy planes for the Germans during World War I, but he was the first human in history to shoot down an alien spaceship. And that came from an interview with somebody who saw it or was, was was there, I believe. So that, I mean, how cool that the Red Baron shot down the first spaceship. That guy was all that and a bag of chips. <laughs> I did not know that until I read before Roswell. That is uh, fascinating yeah. trivia. Well, hey. Okay. I, I, I mean... There's there's a great deal I like in the book, yeah. but, but when I hit that one, it was like, <clears throat> holy mackerel! This 
and then I, I realized <laughs> that it was from an interview, and it was for real. And um, it's not gonna, it's not gonna make, um, you know, any game show or anything like that. But I just think it's the coolest piece of trivia we've got. And every time I look at it, I, I keep hearing Snoopy and the Red Baron. So, uh, um, maybe someday it will show up on Jeopardy. <laughs> what is who is the Red Baron, Alex? Or or who was the first who was the first fighter pilot to shoot down a UFO? That's right. Yeah. Well, you'll have, he'll have to give it to you if you answer like that. Yeah, but I can't. Pro- I probably won't be able to answer anything else. So you know, it's going to be a, a huge <laughs> stroke of luck for for that to hit me before I get you know shown up as being an idiot. So whoever goes so home with four hundred dollars, I'll take it. I'll take it. Just you know, seriously, to just put. I think one of the things this book does that I find just so terrific is it it makes it makes what's what's happened in history not only comfortable to read but insightful and educational and you know it's not it's not Mm -hmm. pounding information that that you have to remember by rote memory but it's it's showing you that that our history as it stands now in history books is boring as, as as it can possibly be and then you have all of this that is a part of history as well that would that would you know people's ears would perk up and they'd be interested in it and what i love is it's not 400 pages it's an easy read and it informs you not only that but there there are major points in history that we cover that are not covered in history books that really should be and you know, I, okay. I you know, well, and also the even within the periods that we do, uh, you know, learn about in school, um, particularly Rome and Greece, you know, those are always uh, big topics. Um, yeah. But I mean, I don't. I'm just trying to count how many we have here from the Roman Empire. It's at least four, five pages. Uh, like, yeah, there was a ton of UFO sightings in, in ancient Rome. Um, well, but that has been conveniently taken out of the record. Um, even when it happens to be uh, the actual, like the very characters that we do, such as, um, you know, the, the actual um, Caesar, uh, you know, the emperors and, and various yeah. other famous uh, people that, that are covered in the history books, um, such as uh, what's the name of that? Um, the, um, uh, the general. Uh, I'm trying to find it. Uh, oh, that was the uh, Cassius and Brut, uh, Brutus, uh, or Pompey. Yeah, Pompey. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and several other guys that that you would recognize uh, from the history books, but you didn't hear this particular story. Um, and that's quite interesting, um, especially considering that some of these sightings really paid a played a pivotal role in turning history uh, because there, you know, there was the one where um, they saw this, they saw something in the sky, uh, which is generally when people do talk about it, they 
falsely state that that um, it was uh, perceived to be a cross. Oh, the um, Battle of like, uh, Milvern Bridge with yeah, Const- Constantine. Yeah, um, which is interesting because I I don't know. I mean, so again, here even way back then, you can't get away from the politics and the spin uh, because there are several different versions to that in, in terms of whether he saw a cross uh, or whether he saw just a bright light, but he saw something. Um, so the descriptions themselves uh, are are somewhat, um, there's some controversy around uh, how, the, how, it, how it was described, but he saw something and it spurred them on to, to win the battle, um, which was, became a, you know, a little pivotal uh, moment in terms of um, a decisive battle for Rome and, and expanding their empire. Well, you know, Ken, too, as, a, as a, I'm a school teacher, and to be honest with you, if I was teaching history to a, a bunch of teenagers, I would teach the history around the UFO sightings, and you would get you would get kids interested in it. You know, this was in this time period. This is what was happening with UFOs, and in this period of time, this is what mm-hmm. was happening with UFOs. And to weave history into something that we could relate to today would have made history so it would have made history come alive for kids as opposed to all of the dusty stuff we we were forced to teach them. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take this as an opportunity to sidetrack a little bit onto the Sumerian mythology. uh, Sure. Because, um, you know, we, about 50 years ago, we discovered a huge um, number of clay tablets in, uh, in what is currently Iraq and um, like thousands of these tablets, and a lot of people started uh, trying to decipher them. And so we have this vast treasure trove of, um, uh, you know, we'll, we call it mythology, but in terms of what is it really? Is it history? Uh, a lot of it reads like history. Um, it, there's some of it is probably fiction, um, and there's all kinds of other. Uh, you know, record keeping and, um, you know, I don't know, all kinds of other documents. Um, in fact, I think there was even a, um, a complaint letter uh, to a vendor saying that, uh, you know, he purchased this item and it sucks and he wants his money back. So, so these are all the kinds of documents that we, that we found. And um, uh, scholars began pouring over them. And we have now uh, a vast... Uh, wealth of these documents have already been translated into English. Um, now, many people will be familiar with Zechariah Sitchin, who was uh, really interested in these documents, and he uh, did a fair bit of speculation, um, which may or may not be uh, supported by by that document by those documents. Um, it's hard to tell because, uh, of course, Sitchin never gave references and didn't tell you which, uh, which tablet or which story he was referring to. Um, so I took the liberty of uh, digging into those stories myself, and I've been able to read the, the English translations that 
uh, many of the um, those who have gone before us have uh, so um, adapt and have done a terrific job of adapting those and translating them into English. Um, even within that framework, so I'm not doing anything weird or like retranslating or I don't claim to speak Sumerian or Babylonian. Um, but when you read these uh, these texts, these stories, um, I read them as though they're historical documents or like somebody is telling the story of what happened um, because they clearly are. They're, ex they're extremely narrative in their style. Um, many, many scholars will lead you to believe that they are hymns of praise and, and things like this, and religious things with religious overtones, um, which I don't think is accurate, although there are certain sections that sort of read like a hymn of praise, um, but maybe they're just corporate ass-kissing. Um, to me, I don't get religion out of these books. I get um, history, and I get a lot of science. And the science that comes up in these books um, matches almost precisely with the science that I see in, uh, that I talk about in my other book, UFOs in the Bible, um, where there's a lot of high-tech stuff that seems like they're talking about some kind of high-tech device. Um, so the Sumerians and the ancient uh, Hebrews were seeing UFOs or in the case of the Sumerians, it wasn't even about a UFO. It was about the people who came to Earth. Like, they're very explicit that these are alien beings that came to Earth. Um, and then they, you know, they interacted with the, uh, the, the whoever was here at the time, and they actually created humans, uh, which is similar to what the Bible says, because it's different, but it's similar in a way where... Um, the Elohim were now on Earth, and then they created humans. They breathed, they created man in his own in his own image. But the hymn there is actually our. So the Elohim, which is a plural, were creating man in their own image. And so there's all so there's the story that is consistent in the in mythology, um, but it's really a history story. And that's some history that is certainly left out of the, the history lessons at school, but is probably the most important question that history can address. And yet his, historians uh, essentially don't think that they have that information uh, because they don't even try to answer the question of where did we come from, which is really one of the most fundamental questions that all humans ask. Ken, since you were just talking about uh, some of these uh, UFO, you know, the UFO biblical connection, um, it's some of the stories in Before Roswell uh, actually seem like you have the same uh, characters or at least the same scenario where uh, 
you know, you have, you know, I think one example is uh, Paul on his uh, on the road to Damascus, and there are a couple uh, what he calls angels that talk to him, and then they like suddenly evaporate by him on, on you know just this lonely stretch of road. Um, yeah, you have people later, centuries later, almost reporting the same type of uh, situation where uh, uh, you know they uh, the, the you know, normal humans thought they were talking to other humans, then all of a sudden they aren't there. Um, are we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, are, are we dealing with this? Uh, in, the, in the 1880s, most people aren't, aren't thinking of um, ETs. Are we dealing with right. like the same type of situation? Um, you know, just different words are used for something that for events that are separated by. Um, you know, maybe a millennia or millennium. Well, I think most likely, yes, um, because uh, they are described essentially the same way. Um, and, uh, you know, is, is there room for uh, there being differences in their descriptions? Yes, sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, if you go back into the... Um, Okay, let's talk about the, the Hebrew Bible a little bit more because the, uh, you know, we have this understanding that um, that the Bible talks about angels. Um, well, the New Testament does talk about angels uh, because the New Testament is written in Greek, and uh, the word angel, angelus, is a Greek word um, that uh, the the society and the culture at the time was heavily influenced by Greek thought um, as well as uh, Greek uh, theology or mythology or whatever you want to call it. But there was the whole Greek pantheon, uh, which was very um, highly influential uh, on the culture of its day. But before all that, um, in the milieu of the ancient Hebrews, there was not a concept of an angelic being from another dimension, uh, nor was there the idea of the fallen angels and the devil and Satan and all this stuff that, that we kind of use to interpret the Bible. Um, although there are hints of some of those concepts, like sort of early stages, that's not really how they perceived the world. And so... When you look at um, when you look at the original Hebrew writings, and you sort of strip off some of these assumptions that we bring to the table, you realize that it's actually not talking about an angel. So a good example here is with Jacob. Um, there was a Jacob was on a trip, and uh, basically, uh, you know, well, I mean, everything was camping in those days almost. You'd, you'd be uh, traveling through the countryside with with your flocks and herds and 
your family right. and then he'd stop and set up your tents. And so one day he did this and he noticed that across the canyon um, on the other side of the river, there was another camp over there. Now, keep in mind, Jacob had a large retinue. He had a huge family uh, with like extended family and in-laws and outlaws and many, many servants and thousands of head of livestock. So he was, when we say a camp, um, think more like an um, army camp in, in like a Tolkien movie uh, rather than, you know, hey, we're going camping this weekend. And, and so in this story, this is, this is what the word means. And when, when Jacob uh, stopped, he said, hey, look at this, this camp over here. There's an encampment of people. And he called them acharim, which is a Hebrew word, which means others, the others. So he was very explicit that these people were, if they were people, they were not his kind of people. They were some other kind of people. Okay. So that, that could be that they were um, aliens in the land, which is another thing that the Bible talks a lot about, is the aliens in the land. Um, but again, it's hard to determine whether they're just talking about a different uh, tribe or a different um, kind of, uh, maybe it's a genetic or a racial thing. Uh, we don't really know. Uh, many of the most of the time, um, but it's clear that Jacob saw these others, and the name of the, so a lot of times Jacob would call the place where something significant happened. He would put a name on the place, and that name would stick. And so this place was called uh, Two Camps. I can't remember how to say it in Hebrew off the top of my head. Then the following day. Um, Again, he came into a closer contact with one of these uh, beings. So a few miles down the road, he runs into one of these guys. And um, this time, he has a close encounter where they communicate, and they actually have a wrestling match. Um, and Jacob is permanently wounded and walks with a limp from now on, which is in, in, in my UFOs in the Bible, I talk about that falling under the category of the Hynek scale as a close encounter of the second kind because there's physical evidence left behind. Another piece of physical evidence was, uh, for that particular spot was the, spot, the name that uh, Jacob assigned to that spot um, was Bethel. Bethel, house of, we, we like to think that it's house of God. But El does not mean God. Beth does mean house. So it means house of El. But the El is short for the Elohim. Well, the Elohim, of course, is a race. It's a group of people. Um, so when, when you, we, saw, we saw the previous day, he called this group the Acharim and noticed that there was a lot of them. And now he comes against one of them. And he, uh, he now refers to him as an Elohim. Well, the, the word El in Hebrew actually means two, um, as though, like, I'm going to the store now. Uh, the, the word two, as a root word, with the suffix Ohim on the end, 
means the two people. So the the kind of in, implied meaning there is that they're the people who came to Earth. Now, that's a little bit of a logical stretch. It's not exactly saying that, but the word strongly implies it. Um, so, but the, the other interesting thing is that Bethel is, uh, is still a known spot. Um, it has always been a spiritual hotspot. People go there today on pilgrimages uh, because they want to see the spot where these events happened. Um, the, other, the other name for this event, uh, kind of the more common name for it, is uh, Jacob's Ladder. Um, which is, of course, uh, a very famous story that even if you never read the Bible, you would probably have heard this story uh, where apparently Jacob, not only did he wrestle with one of these guys, he also saw a flying object come down and there were uh, otherworldly beings coming in and out of um, this object in the sky. He, he refers to them as ascending and descending. Um, and it's not a ladder. The word ladder does not appear in the Hebrew, uh, nor does the word stairs. Um, it's, it's not completely clear, but it's the word that they use is more similar to a ramp, um, which, of course, hmm. okay. uh, is a classic UFO uh, motif. You know, a, mm -hmm. uh, a ship lands, a ramp comes out, and people are coming in, uh, out and in. Right. Um, like it, you can't get more classic, <laughs> tropey UFO than the story of Jacob's ladder. Okay, uh, Barbara. Since Ken just gave us uh, some of the authority figures from uh, the Old Testament, um, you, know, you also incorporate some of the. Uh, founding fathers, uh, you know, what were their um, views of uh, life from space? Well, I, I'm not so sure they they quite said it that way, but um, I know that uh, John Adams, Ben Franklin, a lot of a lot of them were very aware that, and that that you know we're not alone that there have to be other cultures out there you know they they didn't they, they weren't really necessarily I don't believe talking aliens as much as they were talking um you know other planets having um having civilizations on them so i i think that yeah. You know, they, they were, I mean, especially Ben Franklin. I mean, come on. I mean, among other things, he was a dirty old man. But, um, you know, that, that well, he was. Um, he was definitely, uh, you know, somebody who, who strived to um, celebrate as much as he could and did. Uh, he was also a member of a lot of uh, esoteric societies and, all sorts of stuff. So he, he definitely, probably, if you had talked about aliens, he would have thought that was a great idea. John Adams for sure did, and and George Washington, of course, during during the uh, Revolutionary War. There's a story of him 
going into the woods and meditating and seeing a being, whether it was an angel or an alien, who knows, because they've, they've been used interchangeably now for so long, it's hard to tell. But, but he was given the message that he would win the battles, and he went on to do just that. So that there have been experiences, certainly by, by our early um, fathers, and uh, it, they're probably the women too, but apparently history just cared about the men for a certain amount of time, so the, the women don't get their, their say-so in there. But I, Well, it's true. They write about the, the fathers, but not, not the mothers, so to speak. But there, yeah, there yeah. were... Oh. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say... Um... On page seventy, have uh, in seventeen eighty nine, American founding father John Adams financed a publication entitled "A Short Account of the Solar System and Comets in General." The document outlined the national security implications of comets, detailing the probabilities of potential. Effects such as fires and floods should the comet strike Earth. Uh, the book explained that these comets were quite possibly inhabited by intelligent beings who might be a problem because they were almost certainly more knowledgeable about the universe than people on Earth. I thought I thought that was you know, one of those really neat examples of. Uh, uh, how, how forward-thinking, um, you know, the founding fathers were, uh, you know, you know start get, getting into, you know, national uh, ideas about national security with comets. It's just, it, 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 they seem way ahead of their time. Well, I would agree with you. Um I think there, excuse me, I think there are a lot of those instances that people have sort of passed by and, and not paid attention to. Excuse, excuse me, I'm choking here, so let me get some water. Yeah. Okay, give her, give her a second to get her sinuses under control. Um, You know, and you know we can get into the uh, uh, sciences and how uh, you know there are a lot of leading scientists like uh, Pliny the Elder, Leonardo. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Halley, people at the uh, Royal Observatory. Uh, you know, Ken, what do these scientists uh, lend to the study of UFOs and yeah, well, uh, ETs. I mean, obviously, there's uh, some credibility attached to um, 
you know, the, the label, having the label of scientist. Um, and, and I think that that is uh, and sometimes maybe played up a little bit, um, but there is good reason for it uh, because somebody who is trained in science has been, um, well, basically has been, for sure, has been exposed to a certain level of rigor in terms of evidentiary, um, uh, well, I, I guess one way to one way to say think of it would be like um, if somebody's a lawyer, then you know they know how to make an argument. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily know that they're going to be telling the truth, uh, but you do know that they understand how logic works and how to make an argument and how to attempt to prove a point. Um, and and science is similar in a way, uh, also quite different in another way, um, but there is a certain type of um, academic thought process and ex um, evidentiary process and experimental process that is involved in science. And, um, you know, not to say that a scientist cannot make a, a wild claim um, but when he does, he is quickly refuted, um, and in fact, maybe too quickly refuted, uh, because right now we have, um, um, many times we run into the opposite problem, where somebody has found something that's scientifically valid, uh, but the academic community is quick to label him as pseudoscience or uh, you know, whatever other their nice name calling bullying uh, um, right. word of the day is that they choose. Uh, but there's at least there is some kind of um, training and experience uh, behind every scientist who is able to, to study in any scientific discipline, um, be that chemistry or physics or astronomy or whatever. So um, so that's one thing. And then when, when it comes down to guys like Halley, uh, who, of course, uh, we recognize his name from the, the famous Halley's Comet. Uh, he, in, he didn't invent Halley's Comet, of course, but he was um, one of the first people to notice this comet, this comet and to... Um, take measurements, scientifically measuring its trajectory in, in such a way that he was able to predict when it would return. Um, and, you know, this is something that science is really good at doing, is taking measurements and then extrapolating and using calculations and using math in order to predict, to predict the future. Um, they've been doing this since the time of the Sumerians, at least, and probably um, even going back as far as uh, probably 10,000 BC, uh, when you have things um, that are now being discovered, uh, sites like Gobekli Tepe um, and some even older sites in Turkey and the, the area around there, uh, where 
people were apparently able to do advanced astronomy, um, even including predicting eclipses um, and like doing very advanced math that I would not even uh, try to do uh, using my uh, super uh, laptop with spreadsheets and, and computers. And I mean, I'm a computer science and I know how to write programs. I wouldn't even want to try to tackle uh, trying to to predict do predictive um, things of, of astronomical cyclic events that happen in the thousands of years. Um, you know, I can predict when the next full moon will be. I, I'll take that on. That's something I can calculate. Um, but our ancient ancestors were doing very advanced stuff. Um, and it makes you wonder how they were able to do that. Okay, but Barbara, are you feeling better? Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm back. Um, Ken, could you speak a little bit about um, the Middle Ages and those sightings they had in the Middle Ages where they saw an object and the plague broke out and they saw the men with black coats mm. and sighs? I found that fascinating. I like that. Yeah, that was an uh, interesting section you two did. Well, yeah, and that, that sort of ties in to the comet uh, theory, that, um, the comment that, uh, was it Ben Franklin that, or no, uh, Adams? John Adams. Uh, made about the, yeah, John Adams published that paper on comets. And, and then we have, um, you know, these, these, supposed um, correlations between outbreaks and, uh, and meteors or um, meteorites crashing. And so I actually uh, delve into that a little bit in my other book, uh, Fermi's Paradox is BS. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the full title on here. Um, yeah. Just stick, stick with BS. If BS is fine. You guys know what it means, so you know how to Google this book uh, or just look on my website. Um, but uh, basically, in that book, I look at more of the scientific bent. Um, the, the real question I'm, I'm proposing there is, is there any kind of evidence uh, for life in space or for extraterrestrial life? And uh, I'm not necessarily um, assuming that there is. Uh, but I'm looking at the scientific fields that we have access to, including biology, chemistry, astronomy, and physics. And uh, one of the things that we look at in there is comets um, and meteorites and what we have learned about them and what, what you probably don't know because they're not telling us uh, about some of the things that they have identified inside crashed meteorites that have landed on Earth. Um, so if you want more information on that, uh, get my other book, Bernie's Paradox is BS. Um, but all I'll say right now is that, um, you know, John Adams um, was on to something because he indicated that uh, there was a, you know, he, he felt that it was possible, if not probable, that these comets contained life. Um, well, Scientifically speaking, they do, um, and so that's uh, covered in that book as well. I read someplace okay. recently, and I don't know where it was, but that that Earth 
when it was created, when it when it all came together and from pieces of other planets that had kind of blended together and then it was just a, a hot mess of, of burning stuff that, that originally when Earth formed, um, there was no water here and the water water came from comets and meteors striking the Earth and bringing the water with them. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and it's actually been proven now and just in the last few years this is how new uh, this, this science is, is that we're just finding out a lot of information um, just now that because of, we have made so many advanced um, advancements in space technology uh, in the last 10 years even, um, but also going back in terms of um, some of the earlier launches, uh, such as the, um, the Voyager mission uh, and some of these other ones where we've sent out these space probes into the far reaches of space. And they're actually, uh, the Voyagers, um, there's two of them, uh, the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and they've actually both uh, gone so far that they're now um, outside the realm of what we would uh, officially call our solar system. And they are out in deep space, and they're examining and finding out um, some very strange uh, information. Um, no, they haven't run into any alien technologies or civilizations or, you know, they, or, you know, space, um, you know, living space plasma or anything like that. Uh, but uh, sort of. Um, so I talk about some of that stuff in there, too. Uh, but, like, um, uh, the one thing that is definitely, definitely true is that there's tons of water out in space, um, which nobody really knew even 10 years ago. Um, there was some speculation, uh, but really, if you had asked anyone on the street um, even a couple of years ago, well, even now maybe, if you ask uh, the average person on the street, is there water in space? Uh, most people probably think, no, there isn't. And um, that was also the case in in in. Um, in terms of scientists, uh, up until just a few years ago, nobody knew that that water was out there. Uh, it has now been confirmed that there's 50 times the amount of... Uh, so if you take all the water that's on Earth, including our oceans and our ice and our rain and, and rivers and streams and all that, multiply that by 50, that's how much uh, water they've already found in our own solar system. Um, most of that being on other planets, uh, in asteroids, and in um, most of the moons, uh, like the moons of Jupiter and moons of Saturn. So there's water everywhere. Um, and, yeah, it's shooting around uh, like it's not just tied up on a planet because these asteroids and comets, uh, which contain huge quantities of water, are always flying past and smashing into each, smashing into everything. Uh, like if you look at the moon and you can see craters all over the thing, uh, those same craters are present on Earth. Uh, we just can't see them because there's oceans and trees in the way. But that's how our water got here. Okay. Um, since we're you know, <clears throat> we are kind of talking a little bit about uh, we had just been speaking about the Middle Ages, 
Um, you do cover you know, one of my favorite uh, medieval topics, the Black Plague. Uh, right. Reports from this period feature strange cigar-like objects flying low through the sky and dispersing noxious mists. Yeah, that's kind of like a... It would be some kind of uh, water-based type uh, solution. Soon after these objects pass by, plague would break out in that area. Other features from this period, similar to modern UFO reports, include sightings of mysterious men in black-like scythe-wielding reapers clad in black hoods and robes and mysteriously slaughtered cattle and other animals. Uh, One year before an outbreak of plague, a column of fire was seen over the Pope's palace in Avignon. Uh, Okay, blazing comets were were seen numerous times in the heavens. Okay, and and, 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 and the little paragraph goes on. But, uh, okay, so there's these uh, cigar-like shaped uh, craft uh, are hovering over uh, Western Europe, uh, and they have some kind of uh, soluble liquid type thing that is spraying. So, uh, where are they filling the, filling their cargo holds? to um, spray this solution. I, they had they had to get some of the stuff from space if, if they did or really come from outer space. Yeah. I mean, w- one way of interpreting that would be that, oh, well, they are simply just comets or, you know, asteroids that are, that are flying through our atmosphere. Uh, they would look roughly cigar shaped um, because of this, like the streaking. If you see a comet flying through the air, it looks like a streak of a streak of fire. So, I mean, it's sort of vaguely cigar shaped. Um, especially, it might also be trailing smoke, which makes it look even more like a cigar. Um, so, it's hard to say whether, with any certainty whether all of these um, sightings uh, may, might be a flying craft or whether, uh, whether some of them might be a, a, like more of a comet or some kind of astronomical event. But in any case, yeah, you're right. There would have to be water involved in dispersing, um, you know, the whatever chemical makeup. I, I hate to use the word chemical because... I think to most people that means, um, you know, some kind of uh, factory-made product like fertilizer or, you know, poison or something like that. Um, but really, I mean, a chemical is uh, is an all-natural matter is made of chemicals. Chemicals right. are just the elements. So uh, I'm not necessarily trying to say that somebody has created a poison and sent it down. Uh but um, I'm also not not ruling that out. Um, but if it were 
uh, strictly natural water um, water based components from outer space uh, that could easily just be a comet because that's really what comets are is chunks of ice and rock and um, other elements and we've found um, we've found heavy metals uh, such as um, lead and mercury and, and those types of metals those exist in asteroids um, it's only a matter of time before we start mining the asteroids. Um, and the, you know, there's, there's abundant elements of all sorts. Um, and that's going to also include radioactive material, uh, uranium and stuff like that. So there's all kinds of things that, uh, that are in space and in asteroids and already on Earth in abundance. Um, that you don't necessarily want to be uh, breathing. Um, you know, we have, aside from biological um, viruses and, and whatnot, uh, just the fact that um, uh, there's all kinds of elements that will uh, interact in a negative way uh, if you get them into your sinuses or your nasal passages or your lungs. Um, I mean, anybody who's ever worked in construction uh, will, will know about the dangers of some of the materials that they use there. Um, even, well, especially, you know, made a lot of strides in terms of making the job sites more safe uh, in, terms, in terms of the materials that are used. But, um, you know, we used to use a lot of materials in construction that are now considered highly hazardous, um, basically illegal. And if you find them, you have to spend uh, a lot of money uh, that you probably don't have to uh, to remediate these things. Um, you know, asbestos, obviously, but there are other ones. Um, even in the paint that we that we used to use, uh, there were a lot of kind of bad things in there that um, were not super healthy to be around, and yet we we're slapping it all over our vault. Um, so, yeah, I guess the question was, um, you know, what, what this correlation could be, and could it have caused the Black Plague? Well, sure, it could have, and, and, and it could have been a virus. It could have been um, a bacteria. Uh, we have found viruses. Well, okay, I don't want to say that. We found traces that indicate that viruses and bacteria could exist in space. Um, we found we found evidence that bacteria probably has existed in space. Uh, I'm not going to make the claim right now that it still does, although I personally think it does, but I don't have evidence for that. Um, but there's all kinds of things that can cause a plague. Yeah, and, and, and you also uh, cover in, in uh, Fermi's paradox the possibility that the Spanish flu may have had some type of outer space origin. Yep, for sure. Um 
and actually, I just thought of this now. This is a, so this is brand new off the brand new off the burner. Um, you know, there's lots of cases in in religion where the gods are punishing man. Um, many times that takes the form of a plague of some kind. Um, the the most uh, obvious example is the the great flood of Noah, um, which, if you think about it, uh, could also be an incoming comet, because we know that comets are where Earth gets most of its water from, and we know that during the Great Flood, the ocean levels rose significantly. Um, so that is a kind of a just put two and two together, and uh, there's a very good chance that uh, a substantial amount of water was brought in at that time on a sizable comet um, and it wiped out uh, much of the life on earth um, you know we we typically assume that's because they drowned uh, but it doesn't actually explicitly state that um, so there may also have been a component of some kind of a plague or um, uh, you know a chemical based uh, extermination due to non-breathability of the air. Uh, we don't really have a ton of details in the flood accounts. Um, now, and I say accounts because flood accounts um, existed worldwide in every mythology that you can think of. Right. Um, and they all have uh, basically um, a couple of the same um, factors but they also all have a lot of different details too. Uh, but they're, they're, none of them really go into a huge amount of detail as to really what was happening scientifically, probably because the survivors didn't know. Uh, there may have been other people around at the time who did know, but they didn't survive to write to tell the tale. Okay. Yeah. Uh... Ken, since you just uh, you know talking a little bit about uh, the flood uh, story, um, there was one of your examples from you know back to uh, uh, before Roswell with the. Durham Abbey and an abbot died in um, 1320 and I guess over the during the funeral a light uh, shined down on his grave that seems like whatever that was it's you know faith uh based event or if it's uh, actual you know ufo um it, do, do do you feel that some of these um UFO encounters are related to 
specific events, um, like the death of this abbot, you know, do they show up for like uh, certain occasions? Uh, you know, it just ha- happens to be, uh, you know, they're here on a certain day because that's how long it took them to fly from you know, Zeta Reticuli. And they really didn't have a ETA. Uh, uh, what do you think about that? Um, I uh, have Mark? some thoughts, but maybe I should let Barbara have yeah. a turn here. Okay. Um, well, no, I, before I choke to death, yes, it's sinuses. Um, <laughs> I I think that instance kind of corresponds to the uh, the Fatima experience, where at one of the apparitions. Mm-hmm. They they saw uh, what appeared to be a, a silver disc, a saucer, whatever, but but thousands, hundreds, hundreds, thousands of people saw it, and and nobody ever, you know, because there was so much going on with their lady in white, and then they called it the Virgin Mary, and and you know the 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 uh, rainfall of the of the rose petals and stuff. I mean, but but woven into all of that religious experience was a UFO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what I started the show by saying you know, you know, towards the end of the book you do have a, a reference to uh, patterns. I, I think with the hundreds of examples that Patrick collected and as well as what you two added to uh, your book um, the reader can maybe start seeing some of these possible patterns without you to you know providing your own commentary, but it, it does seem like there is something about religious events. You know, uh, maybe you could actually, uh, you know, this uh, Durham Abbey example in Fatima or uh, the Star of Bethlehem. Uh, you, you know, you, you present enough information where, I don't know, maybe the readers are sort of uh, you know, realizing, oh, you know, they, you know, these uh, crafts are showing up for occasions, or the occasion is created after they show up. Well, could, I mean, could be. I mean, the as far yeah. as the, the one at the, as far as the one at Durham, I mean, that could be it. Could be ball lightning. It could be. Um, it could be some. It could be, pardon the expression, but swamp gas, because you know when that seeps up out of the ground. Uh, I hate to say it, but I've seen swamp gas, <laughs> and and <clears throat> there really is such a thing, and it does. It is illuminated, and it does look really spooky, and it it could have easily been that, even without J. Allen Hynek around, but. Um, I, I think that that 
it's, it, it, it becomes hard when you, when, you, when you know about UFO and the UFO phenomena, and then you see a lot of these physical conditions that really do exist, and, and you kind of want to make them all UFOs, but, but they aren't. And I think the cool thing about the book is we've kept it really to sightings that we really believe are, were UFOs, and we're not some sort of swamp gas rising up out of the ground. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's a good point. Like, uh, you know, you made a couple of really good points there. One, sometimes the event is interpreted retrospectively and given significance, um, which I, I think is certainly the case in, in some of these. Um, but on the other hand, um, there is uh, a more recognizable pattern in the more in the modern times, which we don't cover in this particular book, uh, but there is a correlation between UFO sightings and um, uh, I'm not sure how Pod- to say it exactly, but podcasters, like, uh, <laughs> podcasters, yeah, with podcasters <laughs> um, uh, and with nuclear development. So, oh yeah. Most of the nuclear sites, um, especially in the early days, uh, in the early days of the uh, United States nuclear um, weapons program, every single major site where there were nuclear warheads uh, was became a hotspot for UFO activity. So that could mean several things um, that that could mean that, you know, these were just, these sightings were uh, human technology that was um, either friendly or, uh, or spy-based and, and trying to get more information about this or trying to protect the site. Who knows? That's one way you could interpret it. Or somehow, if there were aliens involved, that the aliens somehow knew about what was going on on the ground. And... Um, you know, in many of these, uh, many of the abductee stories you hear, um, there's a, well, and not even abductee, but uh, just um, close encounters which involve communication. Um, a very common theme is the theme of world peace and that the aliens are here to warn us uh, before we blow ourselves up kind of a thing, um, which is quite reasonable if you think about it. If there, if there are aliens, uh, they probably don't want to get blown up either. And if they happen to be living anywhere near us, which they, they seem to be, uh, because they're near enough to know what's going on. So that, to me, implies that there's some kind of orbital, um, I'm not going to say facility necessarily, but there's, there's some kind of, there's something to, some bit of truth to this uh, ancient mythological concept of the watchers where there are some beings somewhere out beyond earth who are keeping an eye on humanity. Well, I think the new, the new new thing is that, that they're looking at um, Alaska and a lot of the mountain ranges there and saying some of them really do contain alien um, strongholds. So, you know, they 
you know, they've they've let Mount Shasta go. Some 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 organization said that they had all aliens had all left the planet because they were afraid we were going to blow it up, and that the Mount Shasta was the last uh, bastion of them, and they had left. And recently, I've read a lot of material about they're thinking that there are a lot of alien bases around a lot of the mountain ranges in Alaska that that you know are so so far away from everything that, that there's, there's no human presence there at all and that, that that's where the aliens have relocated. So I, I don't yeah, know. I, but I'm not going to say that I 100% disbelieve that because uh, it's entirely possible to hide away. Um, and especially if, you, if the vehicles that you have are amphibious, uh, which, as we see in our book, m- uh, many sightings confirm that uh, oftentimes UFOs can go underwater or can emerge from underwater. Um, uh-huh. And this is a this kind of brings us back to the um, Operation High Jump as a classic yeah. example, uh, with, where you know supposedly there's a, an underground base under Antarctica. Um, but, you know, I, I haven't seen any evidence that directly supports that, that I find to be credible. I've seen lots of evidence that points towards that, that I, that to me, the evidence looks a little dubious. Um, but I'm, I do think that Operation High Jump, uh, did encounter aliens. Um, so, um, it is quite interesting where you have, um, again, a highly credible, a highly decorated military man. He was actually the, um, the what do you call it? The Admiral, right? Admiral um, Bird. Admiral Bird, yeah. Was it? Yeah. Um, Admiral Bird, uh, yeah, you know, he took. Um, a couple hundred or a couple, I can't remember how many guys were in his, uh, in his fleet, but there was dozens of ships. Yeah, a lot of guys. Um, and they spent a lot of money to go down there looking for something. Well, they, they, I think some of the material said they were going down there looking for the Nazi base. And um, that at some point, saucers came out of the water and attacked the ships. And the ships and the airplanes with them did not do well, and they uh, they turned and they hightailed it, high jump hightailed it back home, and and that was the end of the whole thing. And but what's fascinating to me was this happened after Berg supposedly did the Middle Earth thing and was told not to say anything about anyone, and it wasn't until much later in his life that I think that his diary was uh, published and you could see what he he says he experienced. And I think with the middle with the Middle Earth stuff, uh, what he found was that, that the the planes that they were flying, the vehicles they were flying had swastikas on them and they did speak German. So there was a connection to, to Germany there, and I, I think they were going down to, to destroy the what, what he thought 
was a um, a Nazi uh, a Nazi center of activity. But uh, okay. they they were they they were chased home. Okay, well, and, and you know during this discussion on Antarctica, um, you did mention or Ken mentioned uh, USOs. You know you do have a few examples of USOs. Uh, one was uh, cited by Columbus. Uh, one was found off of Christchurch, England in uh, ten ten thirty four. Is that the right right one? Um, uh, so you know, you do have a nice uh, variety of you know the tic tacs would you know being seen more uh in in the modern times uh USOs by medieval people UFOs you know, you know you have you know cover the gamut of the types of uh crafts that are being reported on Yeah, that was one thing that was kind of important to me uh, was to do more of a objective analysis of the data and um, at kind of try to identify patterns in mm-hmm. what the witnesses were telling us. Um, and so I think, uh, well, it was quite fascinating to me to find how you, um, basically what, you know, how, uh, there is some variation, uh, but there's only a few different kinds of variation. Um, so if you look at uh, the different attributes that people um, describe when when talking about UFOs, um, you know, there's shape, size, color, speed, um, that kind of thing, and, and various uh, other kinds of act, actions. Um, and there's a high degree of similarity between every case. Um, And there's only a very small number of outlying cases, which are completely different. Um, So you could, you could group, I don't know. uh, We must have, we must cover approximately 500 um, different sightings in this book. Uh Uh, I'm just guessing at least between 400 and 500. I'm thinking, um, and I would say that 90% of them, at least, uh, maybe 95%, um, fit into a very small handful of categories. There's um, there's silver discs. Uh, there's like flaming objects. There's round, bright lights. Um, and then Dragons. there's there's a few dragons um which again is now what are they trying to describe and like maybe the dragon is is another way to describe the cigar shaped ones Mm -hmm. i'm not sure with with the cigar shaped ones you have a little bit of variety within that because sometimes they're barrel shaped 
sometimes they're wad shaped. Um, but in in all of these cases, like there's those are the only the only uh, shapes that you hear about, you know. Um, and a, there's a couple of outliers where there's triangles. Um, the Phoenix Flight is the well well known example of a tri triangular UFO sighting. Um, there are a few others, but for the most part, they're either round or um, cigar shaped or um, uh, discs. Uh, there's only also a certain couple of colors, like a lot of times it's silver, uh, white, or just bright. Um, and then you get your kind of yellow to red sort of fiery hues. Um, you, you occasionally have some blue ones. Um, and, and most of the time when they are described as blue, uh, you, it sounds as though they are talking about like blue on one side, uh, like the way that they used to camouflage fighter planes in World War II. I'm thinking of the, uh, the American Mustang uh, fighters, which were um, typically painted uh, light blue or white on the bottom and camouflage green on the top. So that when, if you were looking up at them, you would just see blue against the sky uh, and if you're looking down at them, you would just see jungle. Um, so it's there's these sort of these patterns which are like that, where it's like, okay, well, it seems like sometimes they seem to be either camouflage or they're, they have some kind of cloaking mechanism. Um, like you already mentioned, sometimes they are amphibious or, uh, or submersible. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, there's other than that, uh, there's not a lot of outliers. So to me, that was um, really important to note that in terms of the patterns, there are very strong patterns within this data. And to me, that that speaks highly of credibility because you don't just have people making up whatever weird crap they can think of. You have you have people saying the same thing consistently over uh, over thousands of years. Um, so I don't know. That that has to mean something. And, and you also get the, you know, like you started the show talking about uh, uh, Corso in 1947 and you know, the government's uh, uh, official, you know, pronouncement of, you know the event you know, was you know basically swamp gas, but you, you know you also uh, give an example from uh, twelve thirty five in Japan where uh, the emperor you know kind of gave the uh, uh, th their version of easily dismissing a. Uh, celestial observation as uh you know th their version of swamp gas so uh this authority figures uh coming uh kind of denying the official science explanation for something uh that kind of suits their narrative has been around for uh at least 700 years I liked it. Yeah. 
That's hilarious. And, you know, and, you know, we have oh, about eight minutes or so left. And, uh, Barbara, you're working on your um, book of poetry that Ken is going to uh, publish. Can, can you um, wet the whistle of the listeners with maybe if you oh, want to do, do a that. reading or t- – <clears throat> Tell a little bit about the book. Um, I can tell a little bit about the book. The book is a collection of poetry of mine, and it has, um, it's not just poetry. I Patrick saw the poetry and said, we have to publish it. And I said, you know, no, nobody's going to be interested in that. You know, let me put blurbs with each poem. And and so um, it it, 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 the poem and the blurbs don't necessarily have anything, any connection at all, but, but there are short pages of philosophical statements and things like that, and then there's a page with, with poetry, and it goes back and forth. And, and um, So Ken was kind enough to, to, re, to reissue it, and I think it's close to being released, um, which is, which is going to be very exciting, and... and uh, you know, I've already started to pull together poetry for another Whispers, Whispers Two, um, but it, it's uh, it was it was exciting to publish it in the first place, and then, you know, that was, gosh, 15 years ago that that it was published, and so there's a whole new audience out there, and Ken has designed um, a beautiful co- cover for it that is very eye-catching, so I'm very excited about it, and I, I think. It, I think it's close to being released, but you know, I, I defer to Ken as to when that might happen. It, it'll, it will probably be out tomorrow. To be honest, uh, it's hard oh, to wow. tell with Amazon. Once you give the files, they, they take a couple days, but um, I'm I'm actually expecting it to be tomorrow. Well, that's exciting. Okay, that's fast. That's fast, yeah. And then I am working on a project with Ken as well to republish the Cosmic, Cosmic Deck of Initiation along with a handbook. And that's that's even more exciting to me because we uh, Ken has changed the shape of the cards, and I think I, I like the, the change better than what was the original shape. And, um, and I'm able to now be writing a... A handbook that goes along with it that we will publish as well so that it will you know the deck will have one of the the little white booklet in it the, the way every tarot deck does but this is a handbook that, that goes more more further into the meaning of the cards and the different um, the different layouts that you have with them and there's a lot more material in the in the book and I, I, th- I believe that's going to be in color as well. So it, it, it's, that's going to be a very exciting combination. Uh, and that should happen within a couple of months, I, I would think, Ken. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yep, I think, I think so, yeah, maybe a couple of months. And I'm really excited about that. It's going to be gorgeous. It's going to be full color, glossy. Uh, probably we'll do uh, um, a, a hardcover version. And uh, well, probably uh, paperback as well, but well, we'll see. But for sure, a hardcover because it's just going to be glorious. Um, 
And uh, and I think Barbara's going to tell us in that book, she'll tell us how to use the deck and um, I think just make it all that much more um, like for a guy like me who I don't know how to use this stuff. Um, but I looked at these cards and I said, they're beautiful. Um, and I really want to know, I want to learn how to uh, have it, what I'm supposed to do with these things. Well, to be honest with you, um, I when I looked at the little white book that was with the deck originally, um, it didn't really give the kind of information I wanted to give. And the and actually, when you gave it to your wife and, and friend to use, you also gave me feedback as to you know how to that it was hard to locate stuff. So I've I've adjusted that and. I think that what what is more impor- most important about the cards to know and to realize is that it's a teaching tool for spiritual enlightenment within yourself. So that it, it can you can you read another person with it? Absolutely. I I've done it for 20 years. But but basically it's to open your own consciousness to a greater sense of of spiritual wisdom that you carry within yourself and using the cards stretches you into utilizing that energy so that you grow from using the cards so that you become your own master teacher, which is a really cool thing. So that's the one. I'm almost, I'm almost there. I, the only thing I've been struggling with is I can, I can give, examples of stuff and 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 do and will but as far as as um interpreting every card in every particular layout and stuff like that that's that's something that you have to learn to do yourself and you know i give you enough information so that you can certainly step into it and begin working with it and the more you work with it it will work with you i think the the coolest thing about about the about the whole thing is that there was a poem someplace I wrote that, that basically said, oh, I can't remember. So these, these, this deck is a gift for all who would seek, and, and that's what it's for. It's, it's to stretch you into your own enlightenment. So it should be fun. I actually I have that open. quote right here. Says, uh, this deck is a tool for all who would seek to expand their awareness and become more complete. To cross the threshold and challenge the mind, use it with love, it will serve you in kind. And I wrote that. So, you know, I am a sort of poet. So, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is exciting. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you... I can't. I can't wait to turn it over to you and get your opinion and of course well, I will and, cringe uh, while I wait for it yeah we're almost out of time yeah, and, okay uh, can, can what's your website and uh, Barbara plug your website and uh, we'll call it in the evening and see everyone sometimes soon sounds great you can find me on dimensionfold.com Okay, I'm at barbaradelong.com, and um, it's it's a very exciting adventure working with 
both of you. So thank you, Mark, for doing this. It was really a very nice thing of you to have us on and let us plug everything in sight. All right, great. Thank you. We'll see everyone next week. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.